0: In your Bibles to Genesis chapter 16, Genesis chapter 16, we're going to do something similar to what we did with Genesis 14, we'll try to cover the entire chapter because it's one unit. You know, one of the consistent testimonies of the Scriptures is that there is only one God. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 was for the great Shema, Here, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Paul mentions that, but in a different context in First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There is only one God. What then are these so-called gods with a little g? Here's how I would explain it. These are things that those who do not worship the true God have made in their own image. In the end, those who do not worship the true God end up worshiping themselves. In Psalm 115, talking about these so called gods that the nation of Israel was surrounded with, the psalmist says in Psalm 115, verse 5, he says, They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Uh, They have ears, but they cannot hear. Uh, They have noses, but they cannot smell. Uh, They have hands, but they cannot feel. Uh, They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them, listen carefully, will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. In the text that we're going to study together today, we will learn that the God of the Bible is the complete opposite of the God that I just described to you. The so-called God with a small G, Uh, this God, the God of the Bible, is one who cannot be compared with anyone. He is in a category of his own, and no one else is in that category. He alone is God, and unlike the so-called gods who cannot see nor hear, we will be reminded from the text today that this God both sees and this God hears. In other words, this God is one who cares, and he does something about it. And so I've titled our lesson for tonight, The God Who Sees and Hears. The God Who Sees and Hears. You know, a majority of the book of, the book of Genesis is a collection of uh, narratives. And through these narratives that are their stories, we get a taste, a glimpse of the God of the Bible and a God of the universe. Uh, we'll consider the narrative that is there in Genesis 16 in three scenes, uh, there's of course a prologue followed by those three scenes, and then there is an epilogue. A prologue, three scenes, and an epilogue. Here's how I would display that. Uh, the first scene is at the Oaks of Mamre, where we see man's attempt to help God. In scene number two, which is which plays out in the wilderness, we see God's response to man's attempt. And then scene number three. At the, is back at, again at the oaks of Mamre, where we see a result of man's attempt to help God. And we'll close with the epilogue. So let's begin with the prologue, verse 1. The prologue really sets the scene for the drama that unfolds. It gives, a, 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 unfolds rather. It gives a, a, to us a, a sneak preview of what is about to be shared. But before we get there, we need to understand how we got here in the first place. You see, Genesis 15, if you remember, was a highlight in Abraham's life. Uh, that chapter too began uh, with a reminder to the readers that Abraham did not have an offspring. Remember Abraham saying to God, O oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? So God takes him outside of his tent, asks him to look at the heavens, and then tells him, your descendants are going to be countless, as countless as the stars in the heavens. Not only does God assure him of the fact that he would have descendants, but we also see in Genesis 15 6 that righteousness was credited to Abraham's account by God. Now, whose righteousness was that? It was Christ's righteousness. No longer will Abraham be held accountable for his sins, those are credited to Christ's account, and Christ's righteousness is credited to Abraham's account. And then last week when we met, we saw the promise that God made, the covenant that God made with Abraham, and he sealed it. God put himself on the line, so to speak, his very life and reputation itself to say, I will fulfill my covenant with you. And because there is no one higher than God, he soared by himself, and the promise was sealed. Now, this is If you would agree with me, a kind of a spiritual mountaintop experience for Abram in chapter 15, a spiritual high, if you will. Abram interacted with God and he survived. Now it is in that context that we need to consider the opening verse of chapter 16, verse 1. So turn with me to Genesis 16, verse 1. Notice it begins this way. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. Uh, Sarai, if you will remember, is a character that is missing from chapter 15. She's missing from chapter 14. She's also missing from chapter 13. But she's now back. And the first thing we are told about her is that she had not borne Abram any children. That is, that she was barren. Uh, This was also the first thing we are told, remember, when she is introduced to us in Genesis 11. In Genesis 11, 29, and 30, Moses tells us that Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. And then verse 30 tells us Sarah was barren. And just, if that was not clear, it goes on to tell us that she had no child. So she was last mentioned Not in chapter 11, but chapter 12 in connection with Abraham's trip to Egypt. And it's perhaps in that that particular trip that Sarah acquired an Egyptian maid by the name Hagar. Hagar, by the way, means flight or someone who takes a flight or the act or instance of running away. That's what Hagar means. The prologue then sets up the story for us. There is a barren, rich wife who has no children And she has a mate, perhaps a much younger woman, who is a slave, her slave. That brings us then to the first scene in our text for today, which covers from verse 2 to verse 6. The the scene takes place at the Oaks of Mamre, and I've titled it, Man's Attempt to Help God. So much is packed here. We're told in five verses something that has taken place in the space of a few months. So let's read it together, verse 2. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please please, go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Abram, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as his wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done me be upon you. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. And so Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence." Notice, it is Sarai who takes the initiative of concocting a plan to, quote-unquote, help God. Uh, God has promised us descendants, Abraham, uh, but the plan is not very clear. Let us do something about it. Let us help God to fulfill his plans and purposes for us. Uh, Perhaps he meant a son for you, but not from me. As she begins to speak, she sounds like she is stating facts, isn't she? But in actuality, there is a hint of a dissatisfaction with God, a running out of patience with God. Uh, there is an acknowledgement, of course, that the Lord is the one who blesses people with children. But even in that acknowledgement, there is a heart that is revealed that is blaming God. It is the Lord that has prevented me from bearing children. So, what is the solution? Well, the solution, according to Sarah, is to sleep with her mate. Perhaps that is the only way I can have children, she says, if I have children through her. Now, what Sarah is recommending here, uh, so that we don't be too harsh on her, what she's recommending here is not completely foreign to the culture in which they lived in. Uh, This was a practice in those times. We have a document called as the Nuzi text, which is, Nuzi is a place in modern-day Iraq, um, from the second millennium, and it says this, if Gilmninu, that is the bride, will not bear children, Gilminu shall take a woman of land, when the choicest slaves were obtained as a wife for Shanima, the bridegroom. And so we see right even from the second, even, for, even from the third millennium, we have this practice that if someone is not able to bear children, that they can take another wife. The recommendation from Sarai then was in line with the culture, but it was not in line with God's plan and will and purpose for marriage. What was God's plan? We covered that, didn't we? Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man, single, to be alone. I will make him a helper, not helpers, helper, singular, suitable for him. Genesis 2.24, for this reason, a man, single, individual, singular, shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, not wives, and they shall become one flesh. One man, one woman for life. And so also though, though not explicitly stated in the text, it may be that Sarai concocted this plan, she devised this plan to even find out if the problem lies with, uh, with her in con- con- conceiving or whether the problem was Abram in be- being important. We don't know for sure. We can't say with certainty, but it could have been an intention here. Now, what does Abram do? Notice Abram listened to the voice of, her, of his wife, Sarai. Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. He was, in other words, a passive participant in the plan. Uh, the phrase there, listen to the voice, is strikingly similar to the phrase in Genesis 3.17, where God says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife. And so already Moses, the writer, is alerting us to the fact that there are similarities between this account and the account of the fall in the Garden of Eden. You see, there too, a wife had taken the initiative on behalf of the family. Uh, There too, a passive husband had followed the instructions of his wife. Uh, there too, man thought he knew better than God. But the similarity does not end there. Just like Eve took the fruit and she gave it to her husband Adam, he took it and ate it. Sarai takes Hagar, the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram. And so the text tells us Abram took her and he went into her, verse 4, that is, he slept with her and she conceived. Now, we don't know for sure, but it seems from the text that Abraham was intimate with Hagar only once. We don't have any indication from the text that this was something that was an ongoing thing or it was repeated. You know, we can tend to sometimes think of generations and civilizations that lived many years ago as purely innocent and primitive, but you see, they knew things about human physiology or when it was the right time for wives to be likely to conceive. The text also tells us that she did conceive. Verse 4. And once she conceived, the story begins to take a vicious turn. Verse 4 tells us that when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. She looked with contempt on her mistress. This is Hagar looking with contempt on Sarai. Now, we don't know exactly how this was displayed, but it's not hard to imagine what's going on in here. You see, just imagine with me, for more than 50 years, Abram and Sarah have tried having children. Uh, they may have done everything conceivable, but there were no children for more than 50 years of their marriage. And here comes a maidservant, having been intimate perhaps just once with her husband, and then she conceives. The word there translated as contempt or despised, is the same Hebrew word translated as curse in Genesis 12, verse 3. You remember, whoever curses you, I will curse. It's the same word translated as contempt or despised. In other words, Hagar is doing exactly what God said not to do with Abraham and his family. Don't look with derision and contempt on the promised couple. Things are not going to go well for you, Hagar. I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 30, verse 21 to 23, where the Proverbs writer says, under three things the earth quakes, and under four, it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, and, and a fool when he's satisfied with food. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband. And then fourthly, it says, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. Here is a maidservant, Hagar, that supplanted her mistress. It does not go well for Hagar, does it? Sure enough, notice Sarai's response in verse 5. And as you see that response, which we have already read, you read it and you don't know how to respond. You don't know whether you, whether you should laugh or, or cry. Here's what Sarai says to Abram. Abraham, this is your fault. I gave her to you and it worked and now she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Abram then is caught between this unusual female rivalry and and jealousy. Uh, In our world, it may not be between two wives, as we generally are not a polygamous kind of a society, but it could be seen between a a sister uh, and a sister-in-law, or a sister-in-law and one's wife, or between a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. I see some of the husbands smiling. Looks like that's a smile of conviction. But if you're Abraham, you, you know exactly what is going on. You see, you're about to say, but, but I was just trying to do what you said I should do. I just follow your plan. I wonder whether the phrase, yes, dear, originated here. <laughs> now, this is not an instruction to never listen to your wives, by the way. Husbands here would admit that many times the brighter ideas in their marital life have come from their wives. But we can draw a general principle, and it is this. Husbands need to show leadership at home. And we find Abram not showing leadership at home. How does Abram respond? Again, he has a pass- passive response. Note, notice verse 6. He has an opportunity to step up as a leader and put this right. But he is passive. From the status of a wife, he demotes Hagar back to the status that she had previously, which was she was a maid servant. She is your maid and she is in your power, do to her what is good in your sight. How does Sarah respond to that? She treats Hagar, notice verse 6, at the end, harshly. Now, we're not really sure all that this entailed. The word means to afflict. It means to be oppressed, and it means to be bowed down. There was probably an emotional, even a mental, or even a physical abuse that was perhaps involved here, We don't know all that this entailed, but what we do know is that it was harsh. So harsh that it resulted in Hagar, true to her name, fleeing from her mistress's presence. The same word that is used to describe how Sarai, the Hebrew, treated Hagar, the Egyptian, is also used to describe how the Egyptians later treated the descendants of Sarai. They treated them harshly. They afflicted them is the word. And so as Moses is writing this down, how humbling it must have been to the Israelites to remind themselves of this fact that their great descendant, Sarai, treated an Egyptian handmaid, an Egyptian maid, servant, harshly. Don't miss the lessons in this first scene. Well, the first lesson is this is man's attempt to help God. The intention may have been right, The thought may have been pure, but ultimately this is man attempting to help God to accomplish his plans and purposes. God, you had promised an offspring, many offsprings, but we have not even conceived one yet. Uh, Let us help you out here. But God, you see, God is the sovereign God of the universe. He does not need their help, and he does not need our help and my help and your help either. It's his glory, and he will not share that glory with anyone. You don't have to turn there, but in Second Samuel chapter 6, we are told of the story of the Ark of the Covenant, which, remember, represented the Lord's presence. It was to be brought from the house of Abinadab on a new cart, and the cart was being driven by oxen. And we are told that when this oxen cart came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah, or Uzzah reached out toward the Ark of God, and he took hold of it because the oxen had nearly upset the cart. But the anger of the Lord, the text tells us, burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence, and he died right there. You see, he thought, Uzzah thought that God's ark needed some help, and so he did something which he should not have done, and faced the consequences of his actions. God, you see, does not need our help. You see, the next revival is not dependent on man's efforts. Because the God that we believe in wants, he does what he wants and he will do what he wants. He's a sovereign God. So humbling to remember then, while God does not need our help, that God still uses us for his glory, for his plans and purposes. He does not need to, but he does. And so... We don't want to bring ourselves to the conclusion that if I don't do such and such a thing, it's going to hurt God's plan. Nothing is going to hurt God's plan. That brings us then to scene number two, which is at the, in the wilderness. And I've titled this God's Response to Man's Attempt. While scene number one takes place uh, near the tents of the oaks of Mamre, this next scene takes place in the wilderness near a spring on the way to Shur, Uh, This would be somewhere between the oaks of Mamre and Egypt. Because you see, Hagar is planning to go back to where she came from. So read with me verse 7 to verse 14. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. He said to Hagar, he said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God who sees. For she said, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, behold it is between Kadesh and Bered. Now here as you look at the text, we're introduced to the for the first time, to someone described as the angel of the Lord, as the angel of the Lord. The phrase, the angel of the Lord, or angel of God, occurs about 69 times in the Old Testament. And it occurs about six times in the, in the book of Genesis, four of those six times is right here in our text. So it's an important phrase to consider. Now, when, whenever those, that phrase appears in the Bible, angel of the Lord or angel of God, they either appear in on their own, or with a group. Like in Genesis 18, we find at least three that come. When they appear, they are usually assumed to be men, but by the end of the encounter with them, they're recognized as God. It happens again also in chapter 18 in Genesis, but it also happens in the book of Judges, chapter 6 and chapter 13. Here, they don't appear as a group, but, as, but he appears as a single individual and is recognized as God in human form. Now this is what theologians call as theophany. God in human form. Theos meaning God. phania means something that is seen. God in a form that can be seen. And so the angel of the Lord finds Hagar fleeing from her mistress, Sarai, near a spring. Now this is a pregnant woman. She is one who is in distress. So you have to keep that in mind as you think of what's going on here. Notice the interaction. He says to her, Hagar, Sarah is maid." Now that should catch your attention because this is the first time that she has been addressed by her name. As she's mentioned before, of course, but when she's mentioned before by name, she's treated more like an object, someone who is used for a purpose and then discarded. But here the Lord addresses her by her name name. Not only does he address her by her name, her relationship to her owner is also highlighted. Hagar, Sarai's maid. In other words, revealing to her that whoever this is, he knows her. He knows her. Where have you come from, and where are you going, is the question that he asks her. As soon as you hear that question, your mind should go back to God's encounter with Adam. Uh, where? Where are you, Adam? I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. That's Adam's response. A similar question is asked also to Cain. Cain, where is your brother Abel? Um, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You see, the response when confronted by God about sin is that one is either one of guilt or an unrighteous anger, or even outright lies. But notice Hagar's response. She says, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. It's not guilt, nor an unrighteous anger, it is just the plain truth. That is what I'm doing, and I'm doing that because I have been treated harshly. Now one might expect a sympathetic kind of a response from uh, this individual, perhaps even an affirmation of the direction in which she's headed towards, However, the angel of the Lord God himself commands her to do something and promises her something. What does he command her to do? Notice what it says there. Verse 9. It says, return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Uh, The word submit has the same word uh, uh, has the root for the same word as the word harshly in verse 6. Hagar, in other words, is being told by the angel of the Lord To not only submit to her mistress, but also to be willing to be suffering at her hand. That would have been shocking to hear at first. But once the rest of the narrative unfolds, it will begin to make much more sense. Because there's a lot of promises that are given that follow. Notice, you submit yourself to authority because my plan for you, Hagar, is to multiply your descendants greatly. So that they will be too many to count. that kind of a promise has a familiar tone um, to us because it was also a similar kind of promise given to Abram. Hagar has now been told that her offspring, because it is also Abram's offspring, we might add, will be greatly multiplied. And just like Abram was told that there would be suffering before there are numerous descendants that follow, in Hagar's case, there will also be humiliation before there are numerous descendants that follow her. But that is not going to be the end. Notice a birth oracle that is mentioned here. Uh, Notice verse 11. The gender of the baby is revealed. We are told that he is going to be a son. Uh, Also his name is revealed. You are to call his name Ishmael. Why? Because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He has heard you. The Lord has heard of your affliction, Hagar. The word Ishmael is actually a common Semitic name which means God has heard. El, standing for God, and Shama, meaning hears or heard. Ishmael then means God hears. What does it mean when it says God hears? What does that really mean, God hears? It's not just that he has the ability to hear, but the fact that he cares. So when it says God hears, that means he hears enough to care for that individual The Lord further tells her that this offspring of yours, Ishmael, notice verse 12, will be a wild donkey of a man. Uh, That is, the kind of freedom you sought, Hagar, for yourself by running away from Sarai will one day mark his life. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. Uh, That is the description of Ishmael's love for freedom. Uh, that kind of a love for freedom, liberty, in other words, will bring him into a conflict with everyone who is around him. He will be in conflict with everyone, and the text tells us that everyone will be in conflict with him. Also, we are told that he will live to the east of all his brothers. Now, this is a picture of the Bedouins, the, the nomads of that time, who used to live on the fringes of a city, uh, a city which is a more permanent kind of a settlement. Ishmael will be like those Bedouins who live on the fringes of a settled society and he will be constantly haughty and defiant towards those who are living a more conventional kind of a life. Now who tells these kind of things? I mean if someone were to be pregnant and I were to go and say these things, they would say you've lost your mind. But who tells these kinds of things? A mere man can never tell you these things about what is going to happen to a pregnant woman. So who can give such kind of information? Notice Hagar's response in verse 13. She called the name of the Lord. Uh, that, that, that is not exactly calling upon the name of the Lord, a phrase which we have encountered earlier, which means to worship the Lord or to proclaim his name. It, it, the text does says she called the name of the Lord. That is, she recognized who he really was. And who was he? he she says, you are El, you are God, You are the God who sees. You are the God who sees me. The Hebrew word there is El Roy. You know, in the scriptures, when God sees, it means that he cares. Remember the story of Leah and Rachel. Leah was the older sister of Rachel, married to Jacob. And in Genesis 29, 32, it says, Leah conceived and bore a son and named that son Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. The Lord saw her affliction and she conceived. Not only that, in Exodus chapter 3, the Lord says to to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry. So when it says the Lord sees, it means the Lord cares. The Lord sees, the Lord Now in encountering Hagar in the wilderness, God has shown that he sees and he cares. And while she continues to call him God, which is the word El, Moses on his part continues to refer to God as Lord. Here's what that means. You see, Lord or Yahweh is the name that God uses in connection with Israel. It was the covenantal, covenantal name of God in connection with Israel. And so here's what it means. The God who rescues Israel from the Egyptians one day, who will rescue them from the Egyptians one day, is the same God who has appeared to Hagar and has rescued her from the wilderness. What an amazing God this is. And then a note of astonishment, notice at the end. Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Truly I have seen one who looks after me and I'm, I am still alive. And like most other circumstances in the scriptures, once he's recognized, he disappears. And we don't have any further interaction in the scene between the angel of the Lord and Hagar, but this is followed by another naming event. You know, this is the third naming event in this text. The first was when the angel of the Lord named the son of Hagar as Ishmael, Second, we see Hagar naming God as the God who sees Elroy, and now it is the spring, the, the well. It's fair to assume that Hagar is the one who has named it and she calls it Bir Lahai Roy which means the well of him who lives and sees me. The well of him who lives and sees me or the well of the living who sees me. And so you might ask as we conclude scene number two, how does God respond really to man's attempt to help him? Well, first of all, he reveals himself to be a sovereign God. Far more than needing our help, we, far more than needing our help, actually, it is we who need his help. He reveals that he is a sovereign God by telling Hagar about her offspring and about the blessings connected with her offspring. Not only that, He reveals that he is a God who sees. He reveals himself as the God who sees. To see, as I mentioned, is to know. He's aware of all the realities of our life, past, present, and future. He sees the frustration and distress that Sarai is going through because of her barrenness. But the Lord's response goes even beyond that. He not only sees, he hears as well. Uh, that is the third response that we see from the Lord. is a God who hears. Remember, Ishmael means the God who hears. What a, as you stop and look back at the passage that we have just considered, what a stinging rebuke to the impatience and harsh attitude that Sarai has displayed. What a stinging rebuke to the passive leadership that Abraham displays. You see, instead of listening to the voice of his wife, Abraham should have encouraged her and himself to go to the God who both sees and hears and cried out to him for help. Instead of listening to the voice of another, he should have listened to the voice of God. Because you see, he's a God who sees and he's a God who hears and he's a God who cares. Let me stop here and ask as I've asked myself, even ask you, are you tempted to take things in your own hand and do it your way? You are know, seeking for a compromise here and there in the given standards of God, in the standards that God has said, you think often of God, of the Bible, as someone who sees and someone who hears, as someone who cares, In moments where you're tempted to to sin, do you remind yourself of the fact that this is a God, the God that I'm dealing with is a God who sees and he hears? Or are you tempted to look for a shortcut, a compromise on the principles and values that God's word clearly displays and shows for us in his word? Well, that could be as far as your temptations are concerned, or your daily routine of life is concerned. Or perhaps you are in distress, even right now. The difficulties and challenges of life have just overwhelmed you. You're probably buried under the the pressures of this life and the burdens of things that are going on in your life. I'm reminded of the song which I so often love to sing to myself. And the song goes this way. I have a maker. He formed my heart Before even time began, my life was in his hands. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls and hears me when I call. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the God that you believe in. He sees you, he hears you, and he cares for you. Go to him. He knows you. The encounter of the angel of the Lord then is really the, the center point of this particular story. It's the crux of this story. And in the names that have been revealed so far, we see the character of God and a lesson for the promised couple. That brings us then to the third and the final scene, a scene that shows us the impact or the results of man's attempt to help God. We're back at the oaks of Mamre. Notice verse 15. So Hagar bore Abram a son and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Now, you know, between verse 14 and verse 15, there's no indication in the text about what conversation took place between Hagar and Abram. But whatever the conversation was, we can gather a few things on what happened in this particular verse. Observe a few things with me. We see that pregnant, the, uh, We see pregnant Hagar delivers a baby. She was able to reach the full term and with the, with the help of God, she's able to bring this child into this world. Notice also that it is Abraham who calls the name of his son, Ishmael. This was not the promised son, this was not the promised son, but nevertheless, this was his son. He would benefit from the blessings that were pronounced on Abraham as a part of Abraham's covenant or God's covenant with him. But notice also that Abram knew what to call him. How did he know that? I've thought about it as I look, looked at the passage. The angel of the Lord had only told Hagar what the name of the son should be and not Abram. We can only assume that Hagar must have shared the amazing encounter she had with God at Beer Lahai Roy. Abram, Abram I saw God and I'm still alive to tell you what happened there. He told me to return to Sarai. He told me to submit to her authority. And then he told me that he'll greatly multiply my descendants and that there would be too many to count. Not only that, Abram, he told me that I would have a son and that we should call his name Ishmael. And then he told me everything that he would do as a man. Abram, I met and encountered a God who sees and who hears. He truly is the one who is Ishmael. All right, Ishmael it is. I imagine that kind of a conversation taking place between Hagar and Abraham. But that's what he names his son. What an amazing story of God's care and provision. As fascinating as this story is, there's also the other reality of Ishmael's life and his descendants that we cannot ignore. You see, the descendants of Ishmael went on to occupy most of the modern-day Middle East, and true to the prophecy by the angel of the Lord, his hand continued to be against everyone, and everyone's hand was against him. You see, since the beginning of that time, the relationship between the descendants of Ishmael and the descendants of Isaac was marked by strife. Their relationship was marked by strife. And even until today, there is anger and violence towards each other between the descendants of these two sons. You can't help but wonder what would have happened had Sarah and Abram not attempted to help God and had just obeyed, just waited patiently for his timing. That then brings us to the epilogue of the narrative as we come to a conclusion. Notice verse 16. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Moses simply tells us that Abraham was 86 years old when this particular event happened. 11 years since they have moved from Ur of the Chaldeans to come to Canaan. Still no children. And it won't be until 14 years further that they will have their child. But we have to wait till we get there. But did you notice that in this last scene and then in the epilogue, there's no mention of Sarai. This was someone who occupied the center stage in that initial first scene, but there's not even a mention of her here. Also, remember, it was Sarah who had initiated the, the conversation, the plan. She was the one who should have been given some credit, but for three times the text tells us in verse 15 and 16 that this was Abraham's son, who Agar bore to him. What a tragic reminder that what is not expected from us to think Uh, that, that we can help God in any way to accomplish his plans and purposes. What is expected from us is rather to remember that we have a God who sees, we have a God who hears, and we have a God who cares, and we can rest in that knowledge. We can rest knowing that he knows it all, and he knows what is good and right and best for us. Perhaps you're here and you don't know this God. You're saying, that's not the kind of relationship that I share this with, with this God. I don't know this God who hears and sees and cares. Can I invite you to consider the claims of our Lord Jesus Christ? In Romans, Paul tells us that God gave us Christ and how will he not also give with him everything that we need? God has given his son for you. He lived just like you and me, yet without sin. And then after living a perfect life, he was crucified. He died for you and me. And his blood is one that cleanses us from all our sins. And the righteousness that I mentioned earlier can be credited to to your account once you repent of your sins and place your trust in him alone. I see a God who sees, who hears, and who cares as I bring this to a close, I'm reminded of Psalm 139. As I read it, I will read it and then we'll close our time together. O oh Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I r- sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, You know it all. You've enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Let me close our time in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this great reminder, so simple and yet so profound. For those of us who are a part of your family, what a good timing and a reminder this is of the fact that we have a God who sees, we have a God who hears, and we have a God who cares for us. I may not know every individual's individual situation and the kind of issues and troubles and trials in life that they're going through. But, oh Lord, we're so thankful that we know a God who is able to see it all and still love us. I do pray for some, perhaps here, who are here tonight who don't know you as their Lord and Savior. Or we pray that you would convict them of their sins. And Father, may they cry out to you in genuine repentance and faith and place their trust in you alone. I do commit the rest of the evening into your hands. I pray for our time together in small groups or I pray that it would be encouraging and I pray that it would be motivating uh, one that would hold us accountable to live for you and for your glory alone. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen. Amen.